guys. Welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Sometimes you come across people and you read their core messages and their, their, what they stand behind and you think, you nicked that from me or did I nick that from him? And because sometimes it's scary how alike the insights are that we gain from our own time in the darkness and from our experiences, either as recipients of treatment or being involved in treatment. And today is absolutely no difference there because I've got Dr. Rob Kelly here and he is uh, an amazing man who tries to make this world a bit better. Um, mm -hmm. One patient, one client, one interview, one show at the time. This man is out there to make a difference in the world. And such people I honor with pleasure. So, Rob, thank you so much for coming onto my show. Of course. Great to be here, Stefan. Uh, it's <laughs> going to be a good show. I'm excited. Oh, exactly. Uh, and it's amazing how, how alike we are, although you still have a bit of fluff there on the top. <laughs> <laughs> I was like you, including the, the, the more salt than pepper uh, a few, even a few years ago. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the razor is, the, is doing the magic work. <laughs> That's cool. And we both play guitar, I noticed. Uh, oh, so, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, it is. <laughs> Who was your father again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anywho, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun here. Rob, uh, it is no one ever wakes up and says, brilliant, I'm going to help other people live their dream, uh, become a really good person and deal with the trauma that is underlying their addictions. Most eight years old, <laughs> eight year olds don't talk like that. Who did you want to be when you grow up? Well, two things. I wanted to be a footballer or soccer, if you're an American listening, guys. So I wanted to be a footballer. And then secondly, and I think foremost, to be honest, I wanted to be a famous musician. Oh, excellent. That was my, yeah, I got my first guitar at the age of four or five, and I was born into a musical family. My auntie and uncle were always on the road playing in clubs and pubs. So at the age of nine, I, I joined them. I, I was, uh, bass guitar was my favorite. Although I can play, like you, Stefan, probably, I can play any instrument. And I'm, I'm mind boggles that people can't play. They go, how do you do that? How do, how do you not do that? It's crazy. <laughs> oh, you, you, are, you have been allowed to tap into that side and develop that side. It's like going to the gym. And initially, whatever you try will be bloody hard work. Um, there is a time when you don't need to go to the gym, when you just put yourself onto two skis and downhill you go. And that's typically age two, three, four, something like that. Zero fear. And where is the fun? Bring me the fun. Yes. So <laughs> you obviously got nurtured at that stage, which was a nice, a nice way to go. The question, of course, is um, being brought up in a musician family. Um, by the time you were brought up, this was probably sort of heading towards the sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, stage. Unless you were uh, you were in a Christian band, um, the life on on the road was actually quite interesting. Did you get early immersed in that as well? Oh, definitely, definitely. I took my first drink at the age of nine, so I knew that was going to be something special for me. And of course, as the years went by, still in school, um, I, I just I love the I love the lifestyle. Uh, I love the girls. I love, you know, as I grow older, it was just phenomenal. 
And uh, that, that's the only real thing I can do, really, without even thinking of his music, you know, and getting people well. I don't know about you, Stefan, but, you know, painting a wall or, or, or looking at the engine in the car, no idea. I can't do it. My brother can, I can't. I just have, I have to call people in to do that. But, uh, music and helping people is just, you know, it's, it's natural within me. I know it is. Which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and that these are our strengths, obviously, and and weaknesses. We always have have got an Achilles heel. I try, I try uh, much to the disgust of my wife. Um, I find my DIY not too bad at all. Thank you very much. I'm proud of that shelf. And she says, "Oh my God, look at the angles!" <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> obviously different standards. <laughs> no, no, but it is, it's yeah, it is what it is. So here you were from the word go, uh, immersed into a lifestyle. What kind of music were you guys playing? It, it's in my, in England. It's called middle of the road, so a bit of cabaret, a bit of country, a bit of pop. You know, stuff like that. Uh, generally, looking at about twenty-five to fifty-five-year-old uh, groups. So that music, we played a lot of country music from America, even yeah. though we're in England, a lot of Dolly Parton with my auntie singing, and uh, you know uh, Johnny Cash with me or my my uncle singing. So yeah, that, that was around the music I played, but uh, very very good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought you would be a nice Dolly Parton, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so. You were nurtured there into a beautiful, expressive way of living. Uh, and of course, it, as you quite rightly say, there's an early exposure to the quite intoxicating. Um, you, you mentioned the girls. Um, it is very easy when you can instrument there and you, you put your passion out there. Uh, suddenly, the girls are getting drawn to that like a moth mm. to a flame. Maybe because men are men, we don't talk much, we grunt a little bit. And then suddenly you come up with lyrics that are love songs and you're belting them out with a passion that betrays the, the fire within you. Yeah. <laughs> no surprise to the girls say, wow, this guy, my God, he has good feelings. I come to you, regardless how false those feelings are because you're playing a song, yeah. nevertheless. <clears throat> Did you, were you aware of your feelings? Was, was, I mean, much of the sex tracks and rock and roll and, and being out there playing a show means that you switch on that persona, that you switch yes. on the Mr. Feel Good. Yes. Were there times when you didn't feel good? And how did oh, you deal with 100%, that? hundred percent. Well, that's where alcohol and drugs came in, in my teens. Um, so I, I, I just love the stage. I love the lights, but I was a very nervous child. Now, people can't comprehend this. Can't be nervous on stage. Yeah, I was very nervous. And, and live performing, um, always, when I do a live talk anyway, always gets me nervous. Now, when I went to Abbey Road, because <clears throat> I was a session bay at Abbey Road for two or three years, when I'm playing with Elton John, David Bowie, Queen, all them guys, I had not a nerve in my body because it wasn't live and people weren't looking at me. So I had this thing about hiding behind my guitar when I played live. Um, but yeah, I mean, just it just felt like home to me all the time. It still does. And my office and my music room are combined, so you can't see. But I have lines of guitars, drums, keyboards, PA, saxophone, violin around me uh, because it makes me feel comfortable. I guess it's learned behavior from from oh. childhood. It's like when you can bring a guitar out, everyone smiles, and you know everyone loves each other in a Christmas song or something. It's just it just change. You can change atmospheres with music. Very truly, and you can you can very much be selective which kind of own mood you want to create 
with the music you play. And that's powerful, a powerful switch. You learned yes. from an early stage, <laughs> yet you became uh, not just slave to the rhythm, you became slave to the uh, to the alcohol and, and yes. to the drugs. What drugs were around at that time? Uh, cocaine, amphetamine um, is the only thing I saw when I was when I was young growing up. Around 16 and 17, when I went to college and, and down to uh, Oxford, uh, heroin was introduced to my to my area. So all my friends that I went to school, school with uh, are dead or you know overdosed or drank themselves to death with alcohol. So I just missed the heroin time. So it was all uppers and alcohol. Uppers because you get up in the morning, take cocaine, you feel great. You get to the studio late at night. You're having a few beers during the day. So you take amphetamines to keep you going till the early hours of the morning and then repeat the next day. Mm. So I, I kind of stick to them three. It was, it was uh, cocaine, amphetamine, and, and alcohol. Which is, of course, beautiful artificial highs. You're oh, yes. feeding that, that saccharine, sweet, Coca-Cola advertisement crap. Yes. Um, yeah. Having said that, when you're in it, it's beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. I mean, people forget what it gives us, especially yes. when you're a shy teenager, when you're a bit nervous teenager, as you expressed it, and suddenly you take a drug that, that gets rid of your inhibitions, and you just go for it, and maybe let the true person in you shine. Let's put it positive. Um, yes. That is... A beautiful, beautiful feeling. I, I remember those times so well. Mm. Um, and it's a shame. It's an absolute shame because I certainly never learned any other ways of having this much fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was initially, okay, martial arts, circus arts, those kind of things that I took on after an assault uh, that, that sort of formed my life towards a more mm. physical kind of way of life i loved that but the highs that i got were from girls from alcohol from playing the guitar with friends and mm. under the influence um mm. it was just this was a different world okay this yeah. was this was god this was good um well if you if you, if you think back to, to the era i was in i mean you look up 20 years younger than I do, but you, you'll, 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 you'll imagine this. There wasn't computers around. You can't just jump on a computer and make a song. It all was raw guitars, like, like an acoustic, or if someone was lucky, they'd have a little drum or something. So you then control the room, which was very important for me. And I still do that today. I have to control the room whether I walk into it. And that's subconsciously learned behavior from watching auntie and uncle control rooms. Uh, and I was always fascinated by that side. That's why I got into the psychology of how one person being shy, which most professional musicians I've worked with, uh, not athletes or any actors or film stars, but musicians, uh, they seem to have that shy bit, but when they walk on stage, they command the room. And uh -huh. I like that command because I was a, a nervous child. So when I was in school, I got bullied, bullied when I was, when I was in school from about seven to about 12. So I have the alcoholic mind. So what I did, I studied karate and boxing and then I started bodybuilding. Then nobody messed around. It was all these little tricks that we use. Most people think when they talk about alcohol or alcoholism, that uh, drink is the problem. 
It's like, no, we are master manipulators. Alcohol is 1% to do with alcoholism. It's how we adapt. It's like, we're like chameleons. We can, we can change color to any situation. I've always said, you can take me in the boardroom and I will dazzle you, but you also take me in the factory and I'll dazzle them. You know, most people have have a, a, a limit. Like in the boardroom, they're uncomfortable, or in the shop, that we we have all these levels that we can attain and keep conversations going. Whether it'll be street talk or whether it'll be posh talk, we can go there. And I learned that very, very easily and very quickly from my parents. Interesting, interesting that there was from the word go this this awareness of mm. others there and there was a time when there were no systematic approaches at least not that, that i can remember mm -hmm. um nowadays you can learn uh, a lot of systems that rely on body language that rely on on the reading of visual cues uh paul ekman uh, all those kind of, of uh, fantastic people who, who teach you the micro expressions and the, the, then yes. allow you to put people into sort of more or less groups and you can adapt your language and your 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 attitude towards yes. the needs of those groups. That yes. stuff was not around, so you were uh, you were brought up just soaking it up, and no one would teach you, not no. at least word by word, but they yes. would show you, they were emulated, and you would you learned that. So there was this this awareness of what was going on at an early stage, therefore, in you. So that was interesting. Yes. Were you a people pleaser? All the time, I tried to be because hey, I just wanted to fit in and be liked by everybody. Uh, so I would, I would do things I didn't want to do. And um, okay. today, well, many years ago, I learned that no is a full enough answer because I always want to please people and like, ah, 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 running around and get home at two in the morning and tired. And yeah, uh, not anymore. I used to be terribly though, obviously, because but... I think most alcoholics just want to fit in. Uh, the, the delusion of an alcoholic or the insanity is not doing things over and over for the alcoholic studying the brain and neuroplasticity and neuroscience is not being able to see my own truth is my definition of insanity. So I, I would want to fit in with you because I, I could be in a stadium full of 5,000 friends and be the loneliest person in the world. Mm. You see, I found out many years ago through studying neuroscience and the brain is my brain doesn't act like other people's. I don't hear things and I don't sometimes see things, but definitely hear things like the other people because I'm always on that high frequency all of the time. You know, there's three parts in the brain, hypothalamus, basal ganglia, and the amygdala that are different to the normal brain. The alcoholic brain is different. We are born, it's a predisposition passed down from generation. You can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. You either are or you're not. Drugs are slightly different. Drug with drugs, you do not have the uh, the allergy it's not such thing as the allergy in, in drugs but with alcoholics we do see i'm 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 actually allergic to the ethanol in alcohol that's what makes my body sick but the mental obsession that craving from the hypothalamus that at a certain point of my drinking tells me to drink alcohol that's why i can go days and weeks without food or water i didn't know that so when i was learning that it was all new science and i love that i love to be able to you know Find my inner self, find me, and the reason why it was happening. Because I would go to the doctor, Stefan, and that's what's wrong with me. Well, you've got alcoholism, and uh, well, well, nothing really. We can't really do anything for you. And when I, I, I was just, you know, when I was homeless, it's like, I, I'm not happy with this. Yeah. There must be a better answer than I don't know. <laughs> so true. 
So true. And, 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 and you're absolutely right. There are 50 plus, maybe by now 60, 70 plus genes that are encoding a higher likelihood of you to really find alcohol very attractive as the one of the most ex- attractive things in your life. Um, and that is genetic predisposition. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, whilst it is more likely that you get this super dopamine rush where you feel, oh, this is beautiful. Um, that doesn't mean to say that everyone with those genes actually will develop alcoholism. So I think that's often quite good. So when when I I preach that the past does not equal the future, then there is actually very true, there's very, some big, huge truth in that. So guys, so if you're right now already about to reach out and switch off the, this interview, oh my God, I'm doomed anyhow. No, 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 no. Because in a moment, we also tell you both of our opinions and they are they, again, they are gelling because uh, addiction, alcoholism is actually your strength. It's actually something very powerful. But at the moment, you're probably not recognizing that. Rob, when did you, when did it become clear to you that maybe, just maybe, the way you were living uh, was maybe not so good for you? Were, I mean, we all hit certain, certain times. Was it health? Was it law? Was it just emotional breakdown? What happened? I'm very stubborn, obviously. So it wasn't uh, <clears throat> that I <clears throat> assaulted my wife with a knife one night and put her into a hospital. It wasn't the loss of my children or the loss of my houses, uh, medical license, wife, cars, everything, nothing. It wasn't my homelessness. It was after 14 months on the streets. I dropped down one late early morning, Monday morning, about two, two or three o'clock in the morning, and I realized for the first time in my life I couldn't stop drinking. It took all of that to make me realize, because I thought I was going through a, you know, a, a bad part. Then my wife left, took the children, and they foreclosed on the house. I mean, da, 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 da. and then homelessness. I mean, come on, he's just going through some bad. Da, da. And then it took all that before I actually crashed onto the floor and says, I was crying. I was crying, not because I'd lost everything, because it's the first time I realized in my life that not only could I not stop drinking, but also I was an alcoholic and in very serious trouble. Where other people don't have to go through it and, and not necessarily people go through that. People always ask me all the time, Stefan, they go, hey, listen, a rock bottom is homeless, yeah? And I go, no. We've picked people up in $1,000 a night hotels, drinking $200 bottles of champagne. That was her rock bottom. It's psychologically, it's not, you know, monetary by no means. But most people go there because we fight, 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 thinking that the next drink is going to be okay. It never is. <laughs> so true. And it's the fight, 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 as you mentioned it. It is the ongoing chaos in which we find ourselves that we want to escape from. For me, mm. alcohol was, at the end, pure escape or trying to escape. Um, but at that time, I had also built up quite some tolerance. So it was actually yeah. very difficult to escape. However, physically drunk I was, my mind was no longer able to, to escape. Mm. And that was, that was, I think, the harshest thing, the meanest thing of all the alcohol. Mm. Alcohol initially was, one, was the best friend I could have had um, because it allowed me so much to come out of my shell 
um, and it gave me many, many superpowers, many advantages, the alcohol, um, at least into certain aspects of my life. But uh, guess what? Uh, that that friend <clears> is turning <throat> on you. And sooner or later, that happens to most of us. Um, and then, I like what you just said there. You said it's the meanest thing. I've never heard it said like that before, but when you said it, my heart dropped. It is. It's the saddest, the meanest thing that can happen to a human being, I think. Because, again, what people see is the symptom, the bottle. Just stop drinking, everything will be okay. What they don't see inside is me dying on a daily basis. And and more, more horrible is people watching me die on a daily basis. Yeah. That's the saddest and meanest thing, like you just said. I love... I love the way you 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 put that. It's so true because you we we can't always describe to people where you are, or what you're going through. I mean, we like you said, oh man, oh you know, I've it, it's it's wrong that we look at it like that. And and the the actual education around alcoholism and addiction is so far behind what it should be, you know. Um, that yeah, it, it, it's a lonely, horrible, sad, mean disease. Very, very true. And the problem with that disease also is one of its hallmarks is denial. 95% mm. of people who are drinking mm. far too much, if you tell them, hey, I think you're drinking too much, what do we do? We get defensive, we get mm. feel guilty and immediately get angry and resentful towards the person who is saying it. Um, mm. These are all beautiful, beautiful signs that actually, yeah. just actually, you probably are in trouble. Um, how how bad did it actually go for you? I mean, let's not wallow in the mud here, but I mean, how many, what would you drink uh, on a typical night or typical 24 uh, two, hours? Yeah, probably two pints of vodka a night. Would would Well, a, a pint and a half a night and then the next quarter to get me to work. And, you know, that, that's how it would go. Because <laughs> like, I could right. not drive, you know, shaking too much. It was... Uh. I had to take something to calm down to feel like other people, but yeah, yeah I was I was con I was constantly drunk. I didn't have hangovers. I told people that. Why didn't you have hangovers? Because I was constantly drunk. That's the bottom line. <laughs> I, I have no other excuse for it or no other reason. And that's beautiful that you can say that because other people are ashamed and full of guilt. Did mm. you feel guilty when you were drinking it? Yes, hundred percent. I felt. You know, I felt guilty. I felt ashamed, mm. uh, and I thought nobody knew. You know, so I, <laughs> right? Exactly. That is a joke. <laughs> I know. I mean, it just I thought I thought it was my breath. I would buy a bottle of vodka and, and a little packet of mints, and then that's it. Everything should be okay. No one's going to smell it on my breath. Didn't know it come through the skin, and everybody ends up on vodka as an alcoholic. That's just a fact, I think. So yeah, it was. Uh, everybody knew, unfortunately. Well, it's the least likely thing to sort of give the aromas of wine, beer, etc. If you have one beer, you stink to heaven. Uh, if you've got, you know, half a bottle of vodka, you might just let you get away with it with a breath mm. mint. That's why we do it. Yes. And yes. I was about the same leak. Um, they come in liter bottles here. A pint yes. is is zero point six um uh, uh sorry, six hundred mils. Um, so yeah, one and a half. That's that's about right. That was where I was yeah. too. And it's hard because I mean that is good going, good going consumption, and then even then you're no longer satisfying the need. You're no longer your your cravings don't go away. Your pain doesn't get obliterated, but it actually is still there and is yearning inside. Uh, the to come 
off of such an amount of alcohol. And that's not easy. Um, what was the turning point for you? How did you, I mean, you had that morning where you thought, mm. damn, I can't stop drinking. Um, mm. What happened then? Well, I'd, I'd been in and out of detoxes and in and out of emergency rooms, probably twice a week, three times a week. I'd uh, drank myself to death on two occasions and they brought me back to life. I tried suicides on six, seven, eight occasions. I mean, I'd done all this as 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 uh, as as it just took its toll. And I think in the end, it's it stole my soul. I think that's the only way to put it. It stole my soul and left me a human shell on the floor uh, with nothing left. With hindsight, I see me being that shell, and you perfectly mm -hmm. said that I use the same words as the biggest blessing that ever could have occurred because I now I had lost I had lost who I was and when mm -hmm. I look back I was a dick I was arrogant mm -hmm. I was entitled I was I was a <coughs> nasty piece of work from any kind of of <laughs> the, the the kind of way <laughs> I like to live now when I compared mm -hmm. it with the past so to actually burn that part out it was a bit like like the phoenix bursting into flames mm -hmm. and then four weeks in rehab for me and then starting to put new habits together that was like standing in front of an empty canvas with mm -hmm. a palette of colors and i could choose what mm -hmm. colors i'm going to put on there and mm -hmm. that was actually with hindsight one of the most exciting and also one of the most scary things because mm. I had no idea who the new guy was supposed to be. Because I had cut through all the crap now. I knew who I did not lo no longer want to be. Um, <clears throat> but who the hell was I? Mm. Boy, I had no clue. Um, did you end up in rehab? Did you actually end up in a in a inpatient facility? Or how did you? I, I, I'd been in there a few times, but when, when I saw Derek... Derek, when I collapsed on the floor, I, I looked up to the sky and I, I went atheist. And I just said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And the guy that came around the corner in the back streets of nowhere was a guy called Derek. So uh, Derek kind of saved my life and I didn't need to go to detail. But I'd been in so many stuff and so many, you know, the, the, the hospitals and the treatment centers and the halfway houses, they all knew me by name, you know, and I... After coming out, of, after doing college and coming out of university, I went straight into the police force. So I was respected and everyone knew my name. And it was just absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrible. I'd, I'd lost my identity. I, I had no idea who I was or who I was supposed to be. I, I had no idea. You know, I mean, when your identity goes, what, what you left with? I mean, you're a shell of a person. You you know, there's a great, the great uh, arrest back in the 80s from a, a young girl that got snatched off the road by by somebody and they couldn't find her. And six or seven months later, through, you know, crazy things, they found her in a box in this guy's house. And the box was four foot high by 12 foot wide. And they opened the box and she was there. She's been there for nine months. And she was alive. She'd been battered, beaten and, and you know, abused. And when the police officer helped her out the box, she put a, a coat around her shoulders. And the first thing that the girl did was to get back in the box again. And I can identify with that no matter how painful it got. That was my comfort zone. You know, I did despicable things when I was homeless. Uh, 
that I've, I very rarely tell when I speak unless it's a real, you know, life-worn crowd and, and they've been on the streets like me because a normal person won't understand. It's like, how can you be that person? So then you have to turn it around and go, hey, listen, people always ask me, was alcoholism an affliction? And I say, no, it was a superpower and continues to be because the past is my greatest asset. How can I sit down in front of a patient and go, listen, I know exactly where you are. If I haven't been homeless like he is, or I hadn't been beaten and, and battered or, you know, beat my wife, all how can I, with a straight face, say, hey, I, I think I can help you. So I think either the universe or God or Uncle Bob or whoever it is looking after us has taken me through this so I can do my job better. I mean, I've never seen my, they took my girls, ages one and three, off me. The last thing my eldest girl said to me was, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I have never seen my youngest daughter since. My eldest daughter, they said three things, because I was left one over weekend. They weren't fed for two or three days, not changed any nappies or diapers. I nearly killed him. But when the authorities burst the door down and took him away, my, my young girl said, age three, said, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. And then they were walking down the path, the police, the authorities, the child protection, mom. And she turned around again and said, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. And as they got to the gate, as he got to the gate, she turned around one more time and says, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it, Stefan. And that's when everything was taken away from me and I became homeless. So I'd literally tried to do everything. I tried to buy my sobriety. I tried to pray my sobriety. I tried to meetings. I tried doctors. I tried psychiatrists. I tried everything <clears throat> uh, to try and get well. I've only two years ago, Stefana, my daughter messaged me on Facebook. Thank God for Facebook. And I went down there and then on the next plane out of San Antonio, Texas, I flew back to England. I met her. It was after 30 odd years. It was crying. I was shaking. I was, you know, all these thoughts of a terrible father trying to make things up. And then she walked me into a living room and she handed me my three-month-old, my three-month-old granddaughter. And I, and I knew right there and then that I was doing God's work or universe work. I was doing the right thing. And she says, Dad, I want to go to school and be who you are. So we sent her back to school two or three years ago. And as of two months ago or three months ago today, she opened my Manchester clinic in the UK as my lead therapist. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a superpower. But the hurt and the pain and the guilt and the remorse and the shame and the beatings and the homelessness, uh, I had to go through that, Stefan to be who I am today. So when people come to me and say, who do you think you are? That's ego. I always smile at them and go, this is not ego. This is confidence built up over 30 odd years. My ego left me when they took my children off me. Wow. Wow. But we have to go there. We have to be there in that, at that point where you are so sick and tired of being sick and tired, where you're so down and out. And I loved it what you said earlier, this down and out, this is not a pissing contest. Who mm. can have the worst down and out? No, 
this is neither a pissing contest with regards to your trauma what has happened to you in your life and and oh but but oh, i was beaten far more than he or i was far longer on the streets than her mm. rubbish trauma <clears throat> comes in layers and trauma comes in so many forms and what is absolute nothing for one person take mm. the example of a road traffic accident <clears throat> accident four people survive a road traffic accident um of the four people one of them uh in the same accident uh maybe with the same injuries all identical injuries one mm. of them will develop the most severe ptsd whilst two others will have very little and one will be a bit shaken for a while so there's a sort of the ratio that you can expect uh and this is crazy so here we are, exactly the same circumstances can be hugely, hugely traumatic and derail a life for good. So therefore, let's be clear why, uh, whilst we are talking about stories, in this case, Rob, your story that has sort of uh, developed over the years, there were traumas, there were the insecurity, there were so many things that led up to this point where we are now having this interview. Um, the, these stories will be unique to a certain degree, but they will also have so many commonalities. And I think that is mm -hmm. that is what I'm trying to, to point out here to you guys. The most important bit is, regardless how dark it is at the moment for you out there, that will pass. And I know mm. I sound like a like the lyrics of a of a song from the nineties. Um, and still, <laughs> the fact is actually true, and the lyrics are true too. This will pass. This emotion, yeah. that nightmare, the darkness will pass. And once you come into the the tribe of people who have been in your shoes and worse and are now getting their shit together and are on the same path as you, just much further down the line. That is where the magic happens. I think that was the biggest breakthrough for me. The first breakthrough was that I finally in rehab uh, was forced with the 12 steps, hey, I'm an alcoholic. The moment I actually spelt that out and my ears hurt my mouth saying that I'm an alcoholic, that was breakthrough number one yes. because I was hiding so much and hiding, hiding, hiding even for myself, there was that. And the second big breakthrough came when I realized that virtually everyone who was treating me was actually five years, seven years before sitting in, in the same chair that I was in. And yes. I realized, okay, so you went from a bottle of vodka to mm. now helping others. Mm. Huh. And I, I didn't think so. I thought, I'm the only one. It's It could only be me who did all those things, who who behaved in the way I did. It is no one could possibly understand me. <laughs> you hear about that. <laughs> that's crazy because that, that's so true. I mean, I thought I was the only one going through this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just when you find out and you're in the business that I'm in, you go, wow, it's everybody. The, 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 the solution's good, but the, the suffering's the same. I mean, we all, with our mindset, I mean, and, and trauma, oh my God, we're still, I mean, we've been studying trauma for 16, 17 years. As far as I'm concerned, trauma is the gateway drug. Uh, there's so much stuff on trauma that we've learned over the over the past years. <clears throat> so I think a step four and five kind of covers it, but you you need to go in depth to find out our trauma. And anything with an alcoholic uh, family, 
anything less than nurturing is child abuse. Uh, and, and this is what we studied. And we've also studied the PTSD with a, a woman in the house with a chronic alcoholic husband and soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. The PTSD was exactly the same. Mm. Both didn't know when it was going to be the last day, both walking around on eggshells, and he's just crazy. PTSD and, and the trauma from our past will kill us if we don't go and get it sorted out. So it makes me smile, and I'm sure it does you, Stefan, when you hear people go, well, if you could only stop drinking. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't it? Exactly, exactly. But that is, that is what, what people focus on. Um, and that is hopefully what people realize when they look at my steps to sobriety on my show and sort of go big back. Um, there are the odd talks about alcohol and about sobriety, but there are many, many, many talks about trauma, about depression, anxiety, about all those kind of things that set us up in such a way that we want to escape our reality with the alcohol, cocaine, um, eating, gambling, sex, uh, adrenaline rush, work, workaholic. Oh, there's so many workaholics out there. But the problem is we have now actually completely rephrased that over the last what after Second World War, I guess, uh, the American dream, hardworking. We do it all ourselves. There are 16 hour days. Ah, these are rookie numbers. Let me show you. Um <laughs> Could that be maybe a little bit of addiction there? Yes, of course, because you're actually running away from your emotions. I, I did, and it, I became very successful by cultivating that. Yeah, I'm a man. I can do 16 hours, no problem. The sheer fact that after 16 hours nonstop work, you make the same mistake rate in a driving simulator as if you had a bottle of wine. Oh, well. <laughs> so here we go. So there are many, many things wrong in our own perceptions and many things wrong that are actually fed by our society. Mm. And I have not even started to talk about the alcohol industry, which is a gazillion dollar industry <coughs> um, yes. with very, very powerful people who are putting very, very intelligent advertisements out there. And then when you're drinking, they turn it around and say, well, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, we have got this really powerful poison, but we recommend, um, what's the, the buzzword? We try to, to basically to, to tell the alcohol industry to, we wanted to regulate them, the world, and the yeah. alcohol industry had very powerful lobbies and said, nah, we self-regulate. And what came out of it was responsible responsible we advocate responsible, responsible yeah. drinking yes <laughs> well, <laughs> responsible for me was that there was another bottle of vodka in the house before i was unable to drive that was responsible yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> fuck me Love it. so how the hell can you when this when the chances are stacked against you when the odds are against you to such a degree your genes are setting you up to do it your environment has supported that lifestyle you are and you didn't didn't really help because you put the same amount, other amount of people around you which are all the same lifestyle so we yeah. see you know you chose your dance partners um and so on and so on how the hell can you get clean What's your chance of actually getting right? You said yourself, Rob, you have been to so many rehabs. You've mm. been through so much. So how the hell can we expect to get clean? That's bullshit. Mm. It is. It's crazy. And and, this, and the streaming centers don't really work or don't help. 
especially there's some fantastic, amazing, we work with them all the time. But when you look at the three to 5% success rate in a training center, then you realize what a training center is and it's a business. You know, if they've got returning customers, it's all good. <clears throat> Pharmaceutical companies cannot give you a pill. Then who wants to know? We're stacked, stacked against us. And then you've got a couple of million people out there doing the right thing because you can recover from addiction. Life after addiction, look at me. I was homeless. Look at me now. Phenomenal. Absolutely stuff we do, movies. So coming out, we do TV, the books. I've got patients. I've worked with 7,500 patients over the last 30-something years. I've been trying to get uh, uh, people help. You know, it's passion. It's it's knowing quite well that everything fell into place for me to get well and that there is help out there. But it's like anything. If you go to a mechanic and you don't know the area, you might get ripped off. Next day, your engine's still bad. You still break down. You don't know. Mm. It's all about knowing who who is the good mechanic out there and mm. going to him for help and being honest, being open. Yeah. Uh, it's scary. It's very scary. Uh, but it can't be any scarier than 4 o'clock in the morning when you've run out of vodka. When your nerves start to go and you start shaking and you think the whole world's going to come down and you want to just die. I mean, it's not, it's not scarier than that, believe me. And it just comes a time with everybody that you just go, I'm done. Uh, I've had it. It's one of the first, one of the first things we are. Are you done? Yeah, but are you done? Because if you're not, me and you don't need to talk. Uh, you know, come back when you're done. And I think, and, and you know this, Stefan, I think people know when they're done. No matter if they live in a million dollar house or they're living on the streets, uh, there comes a time when you can't do this anymore, yeah. you know, and you you just need help. And then we get to two, live two lives in one lifetime when we come back after that. Like I, I, I lived that bad part and now I'm living today, two different people, yeah. absolutely two different people. And I like that. I like, I like comparing when people come and go, what do you know Rob, about being homeless? You know? And I go, well, let me tell you about my homeless. And they look at the house and the car I drive. I live life to the full today, Stefan. I dress crazy in pink and blues and green. I don't care. My hike's hair spiked up. I'm 61 years old. I drive a crazy car. I, I don't care because this is what recovery looks like. It doesn't matter how old you are, uh -huh. you know? I'm always listening to Jay-Z or Dr. Dre. People think I'm crazy. Grow up. You should be listening to classical music. It's like two lives in one lifetime. Uh -huh. I'm not going to mess the second one up. I'm going to have as fun as I can. And that's the point, isn't it? Uh, it is, it is a, it is an appreciation of life, a newfound mm. appreciation. I find this is. I've seen the darkness, and you you yeah. acted upon it. You yeah. uh, actively tried to take your life. I I did suicide in installments. I think that's yeah. the fairest thing. That is how I look at the, my, the way I was drinking. Um, but I had, I certainly had a certainly ideation. I had <laughs> suicidal ideation. I had not a plan because I'm, I'm a meticulous planner. So I plan things and mm. it needs to work out. And I could never find a way to make it look like a, mm. like an accident. So therefore, mm. there was never a guarantee that my family was looked after. And I'm very, yes. very, very glad that I could not come with a good plan. So that was that maybe saved me at some very dark moments in my my yes. past life. But nowadays I live such a different life. Mm -hmm. At the same token, I'm still an addict. Yes. I'm still 
prone to work, 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 work. Um, the workaholic is not out of me and I need to manage that, that guy. Um, the alcoholic is, is changing. Um, so I'm no longer the alcoholic, but I'm the addict. In other words, mm. have you had the, the whack-a-mole game? Um, you stop drinking and you start smoking like a chimney. Then you stop mm. smoking like a chimney and then there is no no woman safe from you because you you go for the sex. Um, was that part of your journey as well? Yeah, I definitely, definitely find I was doing, you know, from one to the other. Uh, <clears throat> I I would crazily in, in the drinking days stop drinking and go on cocaine. <laughs> and thinking it's over. Yeah, exactly. Me, I'm not, I'm not drank for two months. I'm in the gym. I'm looking amazing, and then all of a sudden I relapse because nothing's changed here. I never had a drinking problem. I had a thinking problem. It's not the alcohol. I always knew. I was standing outside a liquor store uh, early, probably four or five o'clock in the morning, waiting for it to open. Um, I was homeless. <clears throat> I was a pair of shorts. I had a little vest on and flip flops. It was snowing, and I was sweating profusely, which meant I was going into DTs. Sure. The guy opened the store at 5.30, was not supposed to sell alcohol till 10 a.m. He always snuck me in. He closed the door behind him. And on this particular occasion, I had no idea why. I put my 10 pounds on the counter. He put the bottle on the counter. I was shaking so bad and sweating. I was banging headache. And for whatever reason this day, I just held the bottle in my hand and my shake stopped, mood changed, sweating stopped. And I felt in a great mood. I remember looking at the shopkeeper and looking back at the bottle, looking at him one more time back at the bottle, and I go, oh, my God, it's not the alcohol. That was my big ha-ha moment. If I ever got off the streets, I was going to spend the rest of my life uh, educating myself and helping people and families, can't leave the families out, uh, education, it's not the alcohol. The alcohol is a symptom. It's like the spots to my chicken pots. It's not the problem. I have a viral infection that could kill me as an adult, but what you see is spots on my body, so therefore I must have chicken pots. What other people saw on me was the alcohol. It's not the alcohol. Uh, 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 Dude, uh, uh, what was it? Was this? You know, I'll get away with it. I'll do one more time. Da 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 da. da. And then I got into the simple parts of the brain that's telling me to drink as an alcoholic, and that's where people were absolutely aghast. It's like, you mean your brain's telling you to drink? Yeah. That's exactly what it's telling us to do. So you have all this trauma, all this stuff. Your brain's against you. Everybody hates you. Everyone's deserted you, but you still want to drink. I mean, how insane is that? But I got asked once, <clears throat> and I told the honest truth. I walked into a bar, and he knew I was an alcoholic, and he filled a half glass full of whiskey, and he put it on the side. And he said, I want to tell you something before you drink that, Rob. If I gave you that and a gun next to the drink... And as soon as you drank that, you had to shoot yourself. Would you take it? I said, yes. In fact, I think I said yes before he finished talking. And he said, I, I will never understand that. And I said, no, you won't. Because it's that momentary, I have my hand on it and I'm drinking. I don't care what happens after that. You know, it's the minimus. I just need to get an alcohol down me. And if the consequences are to shoot myself after I do it, well, so be it. Crazy. It's exactly that. It's exactly mm -hmm. that. And Kevin McCauley uh, from the, the Addiction Institute, he did a nice film on that. Is exactly true, and he proved in that uh, why um, al alcoholism is a disease, and it's not a law enforcement issue or no. a that you're a bad human being for drinking. 
and and how sensible the betty ford's uh, recommendation of just don't do it is actually (laughs) just think fuck off yes no chance no chance exactly (laughs) so i think we have come a long way from such such ideas yet they still percolate around out there and there are still variations of a theme uh in in various beliefs around the world so therefore i think it's our duty that we actually speak out about that and say this is a disease but like all of the disease uh diseases on this world most of them can be managed some of them can be cured Mm -hmm. and i think I'm, i'm still sitting on the fence I don't think you will be, ever be able to cure my addiction because my addiction is, my alcoholism is a disease. The addiction is a series of traits that make me, uh, that that set me up for certain behaviors. So it's then my choice if I indulge in those behaviors. And that's where we in, in the recovery world are saying, you either work on your recovery or you work on your relapse. And I think that is so important Um, to live a full life is meaning to live intentionally, to focus on what you're doing and asking yourself repeatedly, will those actions that I am about to do, are they helping me to become the human being who I truly want to be? Or are they actually feeding more the addict in me who wants to come out and wants to play yeah and sometimes it can be quite confusing sometimes there's a bit of a fuck of war um mm-hmm. because right now oh, i'm tired and really i need to keep keep going what do you do well you take probably some chocolate and a coffee um <clears throat> and guess what that sugar rush <laughs> gives you that dopamine yeah baby i'm back in the game so here you are. Um, okay. So I've just fed my my not so healthy side. Yet the circumstances demand that I keep going. And maybe as yeah. a doctor, there are times when you just don't say, "Okay, I want to have a big long break now." <laughs> it doesn't work like that in my job, and there are many other jobs are like that. There are times in your life when you have to survive, yes. and sometimes you have to do things that that maybe you're not so proud of. And that's okay. That's absolutely okay because the, the the world is not ideal. You're not living in this beautiful protected bubble. That is when you're in rehab. The first four weeks in rehab, whilst it's traumatic, it's a beautiful bubble. You're yeah. protected, and there are like those people out there. But now you have learned new new skills, and now you're being put out into the world, and there are nasty things happening out there, and that's the yes. challenge. How do you teach that to your clients? When indeed, when, uh, how do you let them go? Um, how do you to prepare them for the nasty world out there? Well, the nice thing that we do is because we don't isolate people for 30, 60, 90 days is we are purely telehealth today. Right. So we work with them in their environment, in their home, uh-huh. in their office, and we work with them daily. So it's one hour every day for 90 days nice. for the patient. So and two days for the mom, the mom or the daughter over the age of 18. It's a family disease. So we're working through problems as they arise in the general world. So if you get fired or this happens, we're dealing with that daily. So when we do, after the 90 days, we drop them down to a four-day 
a week for another month and then we drop them down to two days and then we do a free of charge five-year management case study on them right. and it helps our figures you know we have a 97 percent success rate right now nice and a money nice. back guarantee we're the only nice. people who offer a money back guarantee nice. but that's years and years of training so <clears throat> i think usually nine out of ten times they're ready to go they haven't been locked up they everything's happening around them mm. and they're facing problems as they come up on a daily basis mm. so we find after the period of time to spend when they're really ready to go. And we always say to them, you know, you're always going to be family. Mm. You're never on your own. And there's patients and, and wives of patients that always call my wife up, you know, just have a five-minute chat just to keep in touch. I mean, it's just like the only thing, we're a family business, the only thing that we want to be is of help to your family that's going through this because mm. it's the most misunderstood disease. Mm. And alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed disease 10 duis do not make you an alcoholic it's something that happens <laughs> gives you an idea but yeah it's i can't tell if you're an alcoholic and vice versa only i know when alcohol goes into my body i act different to the guy next door to me and i think more people need to look at that <clears throat> my dad has a great saying stefan he said if you can just stop drinking for your children sorry dad can't do that unfortunately uh, no idea why I couldn't, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. So if there was an exception to the rule, it was going to be me. Believe me, I fought so hard to. Because what I wanted to do is drink successfully and go back to them rooms and people and go, ha, ha, I told you, losers. <laughs> I could do it, but never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we say, I mean, for Christ's sake, one drink is too many, a thousand not enough. So I mean, mm. we say that for a damn good reason. Yes. Okay. See, that's interesting. Um, because throughout my drinking time, I would have read self-help books. There's probably not a self-help book that I didn't have in my shelf uh, when we still had mm -hmm. books, not Kindles, yeah. and um, which I would have not read. <laughs> of those that I read, I probably would have mm -hmm. put into action uh, less than a percent, something like that. Yeah. So, and... I did not have people to hold me accountable uh, for. And that was that was probably one of the big things there. Mm. Um, <clears throat> having said that, I was also not ready. So I think it is important to say that for me, for a long time, I was not ready. And then finally, I was admitted um, to the rehab. And I, I cherished the four weeks because mm. I was taken literally out of my environment in which there would have been so many triggers, in which there would have been so many opportunities. It was really hard for me to be in a new environment for me. I think that allowed me to finally get my head clear. Mm. Um, for, for many people in the last two years, that was not possible. Mm. We had COVID. There were mm. people lived in isolation. And I'm so pleased that you took on that challenge and went about it in a different way, developed a, a method and an approach that worked for this new challenge to so many people in this world. And that is the, the telehealth, that is a new way of, of doing things. And that's, that's remarkable. For that, I commend you, man, um, because we need to adapt to change. Mm, and yes. if we don't do that, we fall back into the old problems and the old ways. Um, so it's amazing. 
Can I just say, though, one thing? Earlier on, um, you mentioned a 3 4 5% success rate. Um, it's interesting. Let's rephrase that. Um, I would dare to say that that the people who, like me, went to the former Capri Rehabilitation Hospital, it's no longer in existence, unfortunately, um, that was an institution that was like, like yours. There was... Mm -hmm a very clear expectation that this is not just four weeks um but we keep working together and we keep yes. going and it's this ongoing being held accountable uh it's this ongoing support and yes. a very productive way of dealing with the family disease yes. that was so beautiful so exactly so what you actually have described what you're doing are the uh the ideals of or the, the features of an ideal rehabilitation program Yes. And we need to say that. So therefore, to compare maybe that treatment program there with that pre treatment program there, that's probably apples and oranges in many cases. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, and there are some nasty programs out there. There are there's one of my my <laughs> co-inmates. We we were admitted into our rehab hospital at the same time. She she had the badge of honor. She she'd been to every single rehab. Uh, program in the country, uh, literally, and she had been to one in the, in the south. Um, that was basically slave labor, so she was mm. there literally as a, like a slave on a plantation, picking yes. peppers, cucumbers, etc. And then once a week, two hours, someone came in, talked to them about what they were doing and what they should be doing, and then went again. And that was mm. the whole rehabilitation. And guess what? The very first thing she did after nine months, she went straight from there to the next pub and got blindsided drunk. Yeah, yeah. Am I surprised? No. Okay. So, guys, it is you, Rob. What you were saying is is so valuable. Um, you need to think through what are the features of an ideal program. I talk about it in in my steps to sobriety in my book, but uh, ultimately, do your homework. Do your homework. And that probably refers more to the loved ones, those people yes. who maybe want to help the addict. Because which addict will now do a nice comparison, for Christ's sake? <laughs> no, but it is basically do your homework and talk to the people and see what is what, what it entails, what the yes. focus is with the rehabilitation program. Um, and Rob, with you, that is, I mean, you put yourself out there. You are mm. you're exposing your ideas to the public and therefore to criticism and so those things that you're saying can easily yes. be checked so you know rob if people want to know more about you and maybe want to find you where should they go just jump onto any search engine i spell my name with two b's r-o-b-b-k-e-l-l-y.com is the website just jump on but dr rob kelly anywhere will pop up <clears throat> if we can help direct talk um, we will do, and there's loads of stuff online that you can go and find uh, on the, the uh, website and on Amazon and in Walmart. You'll find my book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. And the only reason why we mention that is we never take a dime from it. What we do is we take that money uh, that you spend on that book, and we had $100,000 ourselves, and we give that to the community, to one-parent families who are trying to get their life back want to see the children, we pay court costs, weekend families. We, we send that back into the community in the United States of America and in the United Kingdom. 
Um, so jump on, have a read. And if you don't like it, text me. I'll send you the money back. Don't worry about that. Just give it to someone who's going to enjoy it. And uh, yeah, we uh, we enjoy what we do because we just love it, love love this company and love this world and love people in recovery. I mean, it really is a heart. It's hard work, not hard work. How's that one, Stefan? Let's come up with that now. <laughs> You're so right. You're so right. We are having to. We are seeing nowadays every second as an opportunity. We are seeing it as the as the gift that really each and every second is. And yes. I I love that. I love to to have the right to choose what mm. I want to do and will that help me will that make me a better person and it is beautiful it is so beautiful and I I was I'm no longer in shackles I'm no longer in shackles to to my disease to my alcoholism I'm no longer in shackles with regards to my emotions they yes. they still wash over me there's still moments when I want to rip someone's head off or yes. where I'm feeling sad or where I've got an anxiety attack these things still happen that's normal is normal this is normal that that these waves of neurochemicals wash over my brain so what yes. nowadays i use them as messengers and i try to figure out okay what are you trying to tell me there why am i anxious oh i haven't had breakfast i haven't hydrated my bladder is full and i'm actually quite tired because i burned a candle again on both ends yes. duh okay so here you are there is there is it's lovely to actually start going into your feelings and get to know you. But you need yes. to do that with the help of someone else. You don't know what you don't know. And uh, someone else needs to listen to you, what you're saying. And more importantly, listen to you, what you're not saying. And that's where really a community comes together. That's where your own tribe comes together. And I so invite you to... to Accept that addiction is lying to you. Depression is lying to you. If they say it's helpless, hopeless, mm -hmm. it's bullshit. Absolute yeah. bullshit. There is hope out there. There is a life out there waiting for you guys. So don't believe the lies in your head. But actually check people out who have been there, done there. And Dr. Rob Kelly, uh, it's not a bad starting point, may I say. So guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube uh, video and of the podcast. All the information is down there. Easy for you to click. Whilst you're down there, press the like and subscribe button so that you don't miss any of the fantastic interviews, the fantastic guests I've got here. And it is it is an ongoing journey. Just as much as, as trauma occurs in layers, healing occurs in layers. And you might not have been ready to hear the message half a year ago or six years ago. It doesn't matter. Right now matters. This moment matters. And the sheer fact that you guys have listened to this interview, that tells me that you're ready and that you're about to take action. And for that, I commend you. And for that, I want to give you a huge hug, guys out there. Live with passion. Look after yourself. And check Dr. Rob Kelly's uh, links out down there. Rob, you're an amazing man. Uh, I'm so looking forward to have you again on my show because needless to say, you are transforming, you are learning, you are growing. So have you figured out who you want to be when you grow up? Not yet. It's going to be fun. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right.
<laughs> Rob, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you, Stefan. Good, good to see you. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Dream on.